We have been in the Gospel of John. If you want to turn there, chapter 12. The Gospel of John was written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. How many of you have uh, that mostly memorized by this point? Or paraphrase? Anyone? No? We've been, I've been making a point to say that every single week. It is John 20, verse 31. It's the theme of the Gospel of John. These things are written that you may believe Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. More specifically, we are looking at John um, into the life of Christ, at the words and actions of Christ Jesus to how we can apply them to ourselves, or to say it another way, how can we be like Jesus, a more mature man, a perfect man, growing up into maturity? Pick up in chapter 12 this morning. Verse 1. Jesus, therefore, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they made him a supper there, and Martha was serving, but Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with him. Mary then took a pound of very costly perfume of pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples who was intending to betray him, said, Why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Now he said this not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief. And he has had the money, and he had the money box. He used to pilfer what was put into it. Therefore Jesus said, Let her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial, for you always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. I'm going to stop there this morning and exposit some things from this passage. John wrote that there we are now six days before the Passover. Jesus is now one week away from his death. He has much to write about still, and many things happen in this week. Jesus, if you remember, were with us. He had traveled back to Bethany from the other side of the Jordan in the previous chapter to raise Lazarus, his friend, from the dead. He was not greeted well there. They were wanting to kill him. He knew it was not yet his time. And so he went north to Ephraim um, and was there for some number of months. We're not exactly sure. And is now coming back into town. The end of the previous chapter, the Pharisees and some of the Jews were wondering if he would come and show up to this feast, this festival that was mandatory, because they knew that he wanted, they wanted to kill him. So here Jesus is coming in one week before, just two miles outside of the capital, Jerusalem, where they would all gather. He makes his way into Bethany, where his friends were that we left off from the previous chapter. Now, two weeks ago in our time, uh, as we were looking at chapter 11, we first learned of these three siblings, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Here we read that Martha was serving, uh, and this is what she is most known for. You can look at Luke chapter 10 on your own. You remember the account of Martha worrying about things that she should not be worrying about. Mary has chosen the better thing. That's what Mary or Martha is known for, was serving. And this now raised from the dead man, Lazarus, is here. He's at the table with Jesus. They're no doubt catching up on things that have happened and transpired in these couple of months. You remember that after Lazarus was raised from the dead, many believed in Jesus. 
And so Lazarus is here. He was dead. He stinketh. He's come back to life. Now he's telling about everybody what, what is happening. And here they are around supper eating. Mary comes before Jesus and taking a jar of pure nard anoints him. Now I'm, I'm fairly confident that we are, um, all of us here are at least minimally familiar with this account, but I'm going to attempt to teach it in a fresh way. Here's some context. Nard oil, or spike nard, is an expensive perfume derived from the roots of a plant found only in the Himalayas. For those that are imaginative, it is described by some as bittersweet, resinous, damp or mildewy earth, mildly spicy aroma with woody green overtones. Whatever that means. <laughs> Doesn't sound particularly sweet based on the description, but that's what you got. So, and if you've ever smelled spike nard, lots of churches have spike nard oil. It's most likely not true in real spike nard. It is a derivative of the much more readily available Spanish lavender. It sort of mimics some of its scent, but is much sweeter. We add a lot of things to it. But real spike nard is very expensive, even to this day. We're talking hundreds and hundreds of dollars per ounce. It's very hard to get. So anyway, the Mary here who anoints Jesus... Um, is clearly Martha and Lazarus's sister, not to be confused with another Mary. Now, we know this because this is how she was introduced in the previous chapter. And this is important. We're going to um, talk a little bit more about this. In fact, two weeks ago, I mentioned that there were lots of Marys. We're going to break them all down today. Well, not completely break them down, but we're going to talk, briefly touch on how many Marys there were and why this is important because of looking at who it was that actually did the anointing of Jesus's feet. Now, many are confused about who this Mary was because they have heard and believe that Mary Magdalene anointed Jesus' feet. So I want to take a minute and clarify this very thing. My Bible scholars, how many times did Jesus have his feet anointed? We all think one, right? Well, probably, I'll just go ahead and say it, two, possibly three times. We're going to look at that in a minute. Part of the issue is that there are many Marys in the Bible. Anyone know how many? Are we guessing? So let's see how many we can get. Mary, the mother of Jesus. I'll give you an easy one, right? Mary Magdalene. Mary of Bethany, sister of Lazarus and Martha. There's Mary of Clopas, whom we're not sure it was daughter or more likely wife of Clopas. She was one of those that was in attendance for Jesus's resurrection. She went with the other Marys to anoint and part of the perfuming process. Um, we'll, we'll actually read about that later in John chapter 19. She, mother, Mary of Clopas, is considered to be um, the mother of James and Joseph. And according to Josephus, the early church historian actually goes on to say that this James, the lesser James, was in fact Jesus's first cousin. So when it talks about Jesus's brothers, it really means kin. And Mary, the wife of Clopas, would have been Mary, the mother of Jesus's sister-in-law. So there's a lot, of, a lot of things going on there. Maybe we'll touch on that again. I don't know. Acts chapter 12, verse 12 
mentions Mary, the mother of John Mark. There is a Mary of Rome that Paul writes about in a greeting in Romans chapter 16, 6, that very well could be the same as the previous. All right, so that's, if you've been keeping track, that's five, possibly six Marys. Um, the point is there's a bunch of them, and it's important to keep this in mind as we consider how many times Jesus was anointed, because we read about these Mary doing something, and we think, oh, this is this person. So turn to Luke chapter 7. I want to read about um, the first chronological anointing of Jesus. We're taking a side, we're sidestepping the uh, Gospel of John for a moment to give a little his, history and context to this uh, account. Luke chapter 7, verse 36. Now, one of the Pharisees was requesting him to dine with him, this him being Jesus. And he entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And there was a woman in the city who was a sinner. And when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster vial of perfume. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and kept wiping them with the hair on, of her head and kissing his feet and anointing them with the perfume. Who's anointing Jesus' feet here? We don't know. She's unnamed. All we know, verse 37, is that it's a female sinner, which is a very strange name. I, don't, I can't imagine naming your daughter sinner, but... No, we don't have a name. So far, all we know is this is a woman who sinned. Now, based on the wording here, most commentators infer that this was the sin of prostitution. She was a woman of the city. Okay, we kind of have some lingo that wouldn't be too far off that today. But it's only an educated guess. We don't know exactly what sin she was caught up in. It's a pretty logical, rational guess. But I'm going to, again, stress that she is not named. Now, how many of you have even think this now or have heard taught that this was Mary Magdalene? Yep, half, quite a few nods. Thank you for your honesty. Now get that out of your head. This woman might be Mary Magdalene. Statistically speaking, it probably wasn't. There was a whole lot of women. We don't know. The Bible does not tell us. Okay? People build whole doctrines and theologies around this. The Bible does not say. Now, let us briefly take note of the details around Luke's account. I'm going to summarize these. If you read Luke's account chronologically and you read the rest of the chapter here, you will actually find out, verse 20, that John the Baptist was still alive. And this is important. John the Baptist was killed in the first year or so of Jesus' ministry. If he was still alive, then this anointing of Jesus' feet happened about two years prior to his death. Okay? We also have the location. of This was at Simon's, and this is going to be confusing later, I know it. This is Simon's, the Pharisee's house, specifically mentioned by the sea. Simon, the Pharisee's house by the sea. Now, there was an unnamed woman. She was crying. Jesus' feet were cleaned and wiped with this unnamed woman's hair, and no specific perfume was mentioned. I've got a great chart available if you're interested. I did not print them, but I've got them. It breaks down all four accounts of Jesus's, the anointing of Jesus' feet with the differences and similarities. If you're interested, I can get them for you. Why would they use ointment versus oil or spices? 
this, what, this is what perfume is. Oil, it's, it's, it's an oil with spices and air, very aromatic, much like, like this. Well, I've got a couple up here, but this is the Old Testament formula, which the Bible says specifically not to repeat. <laughs> this, is the, this is the Old Testament formula for anointing of Aaron, um, as close as they have it, because in, the, in Leviticus they have it broken down into uh, very specific measurements to duplicate this. It smells very cinnamony. Um, oh, just a translation. Just a translation. But oil or perfume, yep. Yeah, ointment, same thing. It's probably more creamy, oily. If you imagine like a, your grease sitting out for a long time, it cools and gets lardy. Yeah, that would be my guess. Um, but yeah, we, you know, most of our perfumes and oils in church and stuff are very aromatic, lots of different things blended together. That's, that's really what it is. But Okay, now we've already read about the Gospel of John. Um, let me, I'm just going to remind you of the details real quickly. It's specifically written to have occurred in Bethany, which is not by the sea. It's some 30 plus miles away. I went into Google Maps this morning just to verify and I measured it. It's 32 miles away from the sea. So, different house. The owner of the house is not mentioned uh, specifically in the Gospel of John. Mary is specifically mentioned as the anointer. Again, feet were wiped with hair, but no specific mention of crying. The feet were specifically anointed with spikenard, as I've already talked about. Now, there's the obvious contradiction between these two accounts is the time and the setting. John the Baptist is alive two years prior, unless it was some sort of mix-up with Luke in a parenthetical statement. It's possible, but highly unlikely. And definitely the setting. 30 miles away by the sea, that was very clear in Luke's account. Now, Matthew and Mark, if you want to follow along, they're very similar. I'm going to actually be reading from Mark chapter 14. He's got a little bit more detail in it, his account, but they have no contradictions, are very similar. Mark chapter 14, 3 through 9, and this is the parallel account, is Matthew 26, 6 through 13. So Mark 14, starting in verse 3, says... While he was in Bethany at the home of Simon, here's that Simon again. You remember I mentioned earlier, the, Luke's account says Simon the Pharisee by the sea. Here's a Simon of Bethany. This is Simon the leper. And reclining at the table, there came a woman with an alabaster vial of very costly perfume of pure nard. And she broke the vial and poured it over his head. But some were indignantly remarking to one another, why has this perfume been wasted? For this perfume might have been sold for over 300 denarii and the money given to the poor. And they were scolding her. But Jesus said, let her alone. Why do you bother her? She has done a good deed to me. For you will always have the poor with you. And whenever you wish, you can do good to them. But you do not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for the burial. Truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be spoken of in memory of her. Now, the owner of this house was Simon the leper in Bethany. Luke's account mentions Simon's house, as I said, but by the sea, not in Bethany. Specifically, we see that this is spikenard, or nard, of the nard oil. 
John also stated this. Matthew did not. It didn't have any details. Mark states that the value, once again, the same as John, was 300 denarii. Same value. And writes, but this was different than John, was poured on his head, whereas Luke and John specifically mentioned the feet. So there's, the whole point of this is that there's a lot of similarities between these four accounts. There's a couple minute details. And so some people try to harmonize them all four together. They sound really similar, right? Simon, Simon, hair, feet, oil, perfume, woman, all sorts of things are in common. So some people try to harmonize them into one account. But the more rational conclusion to draw, in my opinion, is that the anointing recorded by Luke is an entirely separate account. It happened two years prior to Jesus' death in a different town. And still others suggest that all three of these, Matthew and Mark's being one, Luke being a second, and John's being a third account, are three different times. In my estimation, considering that Matthew, Mark, and John recounted this event in this very same town, supposedly days apart, chronologically, I'll explain that in a minute, it seems fairly reasonable that Matthew, Mark, and John were all describing one and the very same event. Now, in order for this to be the case, while in honoring the integrity of God's word and why the contradiction then? Lots of people point to this and say, oh, this is the same event, lots of contradictions. So some people have gone to the other extreme and say, oh, they're all three different events. Well, here's the rational, logical explanation if the three accounts other than Luke are describing the same thing. What would have to happen is that this event happened the way John described it two days prior to entering into Jerusalem, the triumphal entry. Whereas Matthew and Mark are recording it in an, a parenthetical statement. They're echoing back to it and then describing what had happened a couple of days earlier. And if you read their accounts, it's very logical and actually flows very well that way. Uh, some people, they, they sort of put that account of the anointing of Jesus' feet after he's arrived at Jerusalem after the triumphal entry. And so what I'm su suggesting is proposing is that perhaps they mention the triumphal entry and then they kind of have this little blurb about he had been anointed. Not a big deal either way. Um, secondly, it would also require that Mary, or I mean, excuse me, Martha was serving supper at someone else's house, which really is not that big of a deal. I'm sure wherever Linda Bland goes, she's serving dinner, <laughs> right? <laughs> I don't think that's that strange to imagine, right? And lastly, Jesus' feet and head were anointed. I don't think it particularly strange that someone would break open the vial on someone's head and the oil flow down or have some leftover from the, the bottle and they have some also for their feet or who knows. I don't know exactly how it is, but uh, whether they, they left that out being the head and the feet for, on purpose or for some other reason, we don't really know. And it doesn't really matter if it was two or three times, in, in my opinion. That's not what I want you to get from this. I was just giving you a fun little uh, Bible survey of these things, these details. Um, do you know, in, in my opinion, it's rarely helpful to speculate about things we don't know. At best, we can guess something correctly that God feels we didn't really need to know. That's the reality of speculation. 
Yet, for the things that we get wrong, we can either A, perpetuate falsehoods, such as possibly, for example, Mary Magdalene, and whether that was her or not. We also lend ourselves to potentially confusing others, such as trying to harmonize certain accounts and read things into it that aren't there. Well, how many times did he get anointed? Well, if we would stop trying to force these all into the same because it says Simon and Simon and, you know, Bethany and Bethany, that, you know, we just explain things and say, we don't know. Also, I think there is the potential to give room to atheists and unbelievers to actually mock and ridicule uh, and dismiss the Bible altogether um, because of potential contradictions and things, rather than just saying, we don't know. Uh, we feel like we have to sort of explain things and defend God and his word, which is ludicrous. But, you know, and lastly, maybe at worst we make a fool of ourselves, which is not the end of the world, but we all do that from time to time, don't we? But the point of today's teaching is not to debate about which Mary anointed which foot with which oil in what city in whose house and when it was done. That was just the background. What I hope that we all glean from this is something much bigger and more important. Now, I read these verses specifically in Mark, and I want to bring circle you back around to it. Because Matthew and Mark both end their account of this this way. They say, Truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be spoken of in memory of her. And, and why does Jesus say that? Well, the answer is actually found in the previous verse, is that she has anointed my body, Jesus' body, for burial beforehand. And so there's something that obviously we see and ought to jump out at us is that this Mary was worshiping Christ, but there's a prophetic element to it, whether she understood it or not. So to honor Christ's words, let us consider the main point of this story. This Mary, the sister of Lazarus, what she demonstrates here is a beautiful act of worship toward Christ Jesus. Here we are thousands of years later, purposefully talking about her to learn from her example. What can we learn? Well, firstly, I would say, suggest that we look to ourselves. Let us consider our actions. Am I more likely to be like Martha, serving dinner? Like Lazarus, fellowshipping, sitting around the table with Jesus? Or Mary, worshiping and prophesying at his feet? You remember, may remember that this was the very same thing, as I mentioned earlier, that Martha was known for in Luke chapter 10. But I think it's good for us to consider what our actions speak about our relationship with Jesus. How do you view him? What sort of interactions do you have with him on a day-to-day -day basis? Is it surfacy? Is it, is it just in reading scripture? Do you pray to him? Do you talk with him? Do you feel close to him? Do you feel like you can serve him? Do you, are you able to enter into worship with him? Perhaps all three of these things. Do you see him as a friend to catch up with, just someone to serve and bless, or do you see him as your Lord and Savior, someone who's going, who has died in your place? Now, I don't want to make too much of the prophetic here, but Jesus did say that this woman would re be remembered for her actions wherever the gospel is preached, so I think it's safe to say that what she did was at least very important. Now, what do I mean by the prophetic? 
Well, the perfume in preparation of Jesus' burial was a prophetic gesture toward his death. And while Mary may not have understood that in the moment that he was about to die, I mean, after all, they didn't understand that Lazarus was going to be raised from the dead. They went to the tomb and they were shocked and surprised when he actually had raised from the dead. It's quite possible and probable even that she did not understand he was about to die, even though he had constantly been telling his disciples that she really just did this out of an act of worship. But Jesus is using this action as a teaching moment, as an illustration, to make a point and saying, I'm giving you a heads up, this is what's going to happen. As he was often doing, he was looking for things to make an illustration and a point. And so he focuses on this act and saying, I can justify the, extent, the expense of this because I'm, I'm not going to be here. I'm going to die. You'll have plenty of time to give to the poor. But right now, this is a good thing. I'm leaving shortly. And he uses this as a launching point to explain his death. Now, as I said, Mary probably didn't understand exactly what Jesus had meant by this. But the fact that she humbled herself in worship and wept over his feet, I mean, that alone will preach, won't it? I mean, how many of you would feel comfortable spending 25 grand to worship Jesus? Because that's, that's the ballpark of what we're talking about here. 300 denarii, this is the Roman denarii, there were different kinds back then. It was a day's wage for an unskilled labor. Okay, so if you do the math, six days a week, this is a normal work week, and multiply this out, we're in the ballpark, plus or minus, of around 25,000 US dollars. That's a lot of money to worship someone. And, you know, when you put in that context, in that light, it's a little bit, you know, relatable to Judas. Now, I know we, none of us want to relate to him because it's like we know what his motives were. John tells us, right? But truthfully, it would be shocking. You Imagine the poverty you see on a day-to-day -day basis. And here, someone dumps out 25 grand on someone's feet. Judas was so broke that 30 pieces of silver were enough for him to hand Jesus over. Imagine what he could have done with 300 coins. How many disciples he could have betrayed for that. <laughs> you 10. I want you. Now Jesus, kind and compassionate, full of grace and mercy, enveloped with love, he received Mary's act of worship and at the same time rebuked Judas for having fleshly eyes. See, Judas didn't care about giving money to the poor. He just wanted to go to Outback for dinner. That's, that's in verse 6. You can read it again. I, I find it interesting that John just gives that little detail about him, right? He used to pilfer from the money box. He used to steal from the money box. Like, how would you, you know, you have all these terrible things to be remembered for, betraying Jesus, and John's like, yeah, by the way, he used to steal too. Right? But you know what? Jesus still called Judas. He called him to be his disciple. And that just goes to show you that his ways are not our ways. He uses the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. 
How many of you have ever dealt with a so-called Christian that was difficult? Right? Am I the only one? Everyone's afraid to admit it. People are afraid to... Why are you all looking at me, actually? What, what is... <laughs> Do you know maybe God placed them in your lives to accomplish something bigger? Now, don't mistake what I'm saying. I'm not saying that it's healthy to, you know, view everybody you don't like and be like, hmm, I wonder why God put you in my life. <laughs> what I mean is that we ought to be encouraged that even the most difficult people in our lives can be used by God to bring about good. to teach us something, to better us, to bring glory to him. Now, in light of Mary's act, actions, I want to ask you, what would you give to your king this morning, tomorrow, next week? How could you worship him better today with your life, with your words, with your finances, with your talents and abilities? I think it would be fitting if we did a little inventory of our hearts, don't you? That's what I want to do. It, it, it's, it's stop for a moment and, and just reflect on the question and think, is what I do in the name of Christianity, is it for Christ or is it for myself? May we go to great lengths to worship our king. May we humble ourselves at his feet. May we humble ourselves and be willing to take, I know, it's, I know hair, I know it's going to come up, our hair, <laughs> and humble ourselves, I'm trying to relate, and wipe the feet of Jesus, the dirty feet, with sandals that would walk and accumulate dust all over them. The beauty of a woman's in her hair. And here she is, taking on the dirty feet of Jesus with her tears and the perfume and oil. Beloved, may you remember this Mary and her deeds to Christ, and may you look for opportunity to do the same toward him. Now, I want to shift focus off of Mary and Judas for a moment. Just throughout the Gospel of John, we've been looking to Jesus for how we ought to act and speak. And I want to try and glean some application to our lives here. When I look at this account of Jesus, one thing that stands out to me that I've, we have yet to talk about in the Gospel of John is the reception of gifts. Anybody here absolutely love to receive gifts? You just get thrilled? Yes, okay, a couple people. Yep, I knew it. <laughs> Thanks, Caleb, for, for being honest. Kids, you can always count on kids, right? It wasn't just Caleb. Kathy was nodding yes. So I know there's some people that are like, I don't think I'm supposed to raise my hand, but yeah. <laughs> I relate. I love gifts. I love, anyone love compliments, right? Make you feel good? Now, anybody here have a hard time receiving gifts and compliments, right? I put myself in that category. Why is it that some of us have a hard time receiving gifts or compliments and others enjoy it and love it? See, some people absolutely cherish those things that others avoid. Now, to the avoiders, and again, I put myself in this category, I've got something I want to share with you this morning, and you gifted doors, you need not check out because maybe you'll glean a little insight this morning to the rest of us. 
I believe the difficulty in receiving things comes from a feeling of inadequacy, unworthiness, and embarrassment. Sometimes the response is out of shame because we may not have anything to offer back. We may be caught off guard, or you are not, you don't have the financial means to do so. And so what happens? You sort of sheepishly and awkwardly receive something. We're not really sure what to say, whether it's a compliment or whether it's a physical gift. I know that I've tried to shift attention onto others that I deem more worthy candidates. Oh, we could give this to somebody else, or thank you, and and, you know, you try to just take a little bit of the pressure off because you can't handle it. It puts you in the spotlight. And it's weird. Here's the argument that I'll make. If the Bible commands us to give financially, 2 Corinthians 9, 7, each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Another example is Luke chapter 6, verse 38. Given will be given to you, good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over. But God is also commands us in his word to just generally give, right? I'll give you a couple examples. Hebrews 13, 16, do not neglect to do good and to share what you have. Proverbs 18, 16, a man's gift makes room for him and brings him before the great. So if the Bible commands us to give... That must mean that there are some that are meant to receive. Now, you could argue, I, I already know what the naysayers are thinking. Oh, yeah, but it doesn't have to be me, right? It'd be better for someone else. Yeah. See what we do there? We try and justify and rationalize. Church, being able to receive a gift with gratitude is a sign of a healthy, humble spirit. You see both... Pride and low self-esteem prevent us from receiving, not only from others, but also from Christ. Oh, if you could see yourself the way that God sees you. Do you know that in Christ Jesus you are worthy? Do you know that he delights in you? He rejoices over you with singing? Do you know that you are an heir of God in Christ Jesus? And to reject his gifts because of pride or shame is to reject who God is. I'll say that again because it was better than I think we think it is. <laughs> to reject God's gifts is to reject who he is. What did he give? God so loved the world that he gave. His only begotten son. James 1 says, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Do you know that God has given us gifts on earth? Do you realize that we are to one day receive rewards in heaven? So you might as well start practicing receiving now. Listen, Every time we tell God no thanks, whether that be through our action or our posture or even sometimes through our words, what we're doing is we're rejecting why, not only why he came, but who he is, his identity himself. God is provider. He is healer. He is our banner. No thanks, God. I'm unworthy. When we're scared to come before 
his throne and, and ask for prayer for healing, what we're saying is, God, I don't accept that you are a big enough healer to meet all of my needs too. God, I don't want to ask you to help me with this bill or, or this thing coming up or, or for these good things or for food on the table because there are people that are in more need than me. What you're doing is you're limiting God's provision and saying, well, God, I know that you're stretched a little thin this day because of the inflation and the economy and all, so it's just best if I don't ask. Are we really going to try and convince him that his death was not good enough to justify us in his eyes? Are we really so wicked that his grace isn't sufficient? It's like when you put yourself down, you know, you make a mistake. I don't know if you ever do this. Sometimes I do. I'm so stupid. I'm such an idiot. Forgive me. Excuse me. Whatever we say, you know, right? I'll never amount to anything. We put ourselves down. It's, what is that? That's insecurity talking. Perhaps hoping for someone else to correct us and build us up. Listen, we ought not play God, uh, games with God. He knows what's on our mind and in our heart already. Now, I want to remind you of, of what is his, of what he has given us. He's given us the greatest gift of all because he's loved us through his son. He's given us eternal life. And so to put ourselves down is to denigrate Jesus Christ. We say, oh, I'm not worthy. I haven't done good enough. What we're really saying is, I don't need Jesus. I don't need why he came. I don't need God's gift to me because it was a personal gift, wasn't it? That's worth letting your spirit feast on. You know, and this isn't just something that we should think about in relation to the Father. The encouragement is that also we would not steal someone else's blessing from God by receiving a gift with a solemn face. No thanks, or I'm not really sure how to act in this. But if you would just say, you know what, I appreciate that you would think of me, that you would love me, that you would do this. And we receive that with joy. You know, for all we know that God may have told them to give it, and we're just being like a wet blanket on their obedience. That's not fun to be around. You know what, I appreciate you, and I appreciate your obedience to Christ. For all we know, that's what we might need to say to encourage them. They've stepped out in faith, and they're, they're following the Lord's leading. Beloved, we must quit putting down the gifts of others through our speech or our actions, our body language. I know it's uncomfortable sometimes. Receive it and see it for what it is, because that person cares for you. Now, this Jesus, he obviously is receiving something much better than just an expensive gift. He's receiving worship. And that's something that we alone give to him. Let us not mistake that and say we need to receive man's worship and praise. But there are things in this world that I think we can apply to ourselves. When someone gives you a compliment and encourages you and speaks something good over you, a blessing, we ought to be able to look at them in the eyes or with the eyes of Christ and say thank you. I appreciate that. I receive that. And we ought to be able to do the same toward God the Father when he blesses us with things, whether it's financial, emotional, physical, whatever it is, I would encourage you and challenge you to learn to receive the blessing and the gifts from God.